0: The third chapter of the Song of Solomon is much easier to discuss than some of the other chapters for the reason that I talked about some time ago, the fact that you can read through certain chapters of the Song of Solomon and it changes the point of view, it changes the person speaking, it changes the perspective on the drop of a hat, and you've got to really be careful not to get lost in the dialogue, and it is a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of discussion between the bride and the bridegroom. Sometimes there's other voices that are heard, like the daughters of Jerusalem, and possibly other characters. But the third chapter is a little bit easier. About the first five verses, I think, are describing the Shulamite, the bride candidate. I've been calling her the bride candidate, because throughout most of the Song of Solomon, she is not the bride yet. She's the bride-to-be. So... The third chapter starts, I think, around the first five verses, our description of the bride-to-be, the bride-candidate, seeking for the bridegroom, longing for the bridegroom. And then around the sixth verse, I think, is when it begins to describe his coming. And then it describes what's called in the King James Version his bed, Solomon's bed, which probably isn't a bed in the sense we think of it. We'll talk about that. So there's two different things going on in this third chapter. The first half of the chapter is the bride-to-be looking for the bridegroom, seeking the bridegroom. The last half of the chapter, a great deal of it at least, is the bridegroom coming and some of the descriptive language regarding his coming and regarding some of the things surrounding that. Probably we'll try to break this into two pieces. We'll probably try to go through the first half of this and deal with her comments before his coming. So all right, who will read the first verse of this third chapter of the Song of Solomon? Leslie, you got it? I got it. All right. Okay. By night on my bed, I sought him, whom oh, my soul loveth. it. I sought him, but I found him not. She sought him, but she found him not. We're not going to go into a lot of details. This is one example of an area we can go much quicker through because we already discussed in a lot of detail what it means to rest, what a bed represents symbolically. I'll give you a brief synopsis of that as a reminder if you don't remember. If a bed is intended to be used symbolically, there's two symbolic ways you might interpret it. One is it's a place where you rest spiritually. The other one is it is a place where life is produced spiritually. Now, both of those are true literally, but the focus I want your mind on in regard to that is spiritually. In some examples where you might talk about sleep or rest or a bed or a place of repose, It's referring to you being spiritually at rest, resting spiritually. In other places, it might refer to a place where life is procreated. In the sense that I'm talking about, that's through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God, through those two seeds. Both of them are called seeds in the Bible. There's a seed of the Spirit of God, but there's also the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. Resting represents a spiritual state of rest. You rest in your spiritual relationship with Christ. And when you say that you're resting in Christ, you're resting from sin. It isn't just a confidence in Christ. It isn't just a trusting in him. You could use that poetically to say, I'm resting in Christ because I don't fear anything, because I trust him, because I've given my life into his care. But if you take that to its root meaning, it really represents you resting from any state of activity that would be displeasing to God. You're no longer doing any activity to be displeasing to God. You're resting from sin which is how Hebrews 3 and 4 refers to the Sabbath rest, spiritually speaking. So that's one element of it. And I said here a moment ago, the other way that you can use the picture of a bed is a place where life is created. And that life is created spiritually through the word and through the spirit. When it says, by night on my bed I sought him, the word night there is the Hebrew lila. But the Hebrew word here is not in the singular, so it's not night, it's actually nights. If you wanted to translate it literally, you'd have to say, By nights on my bed I sought him, which is an odd way to word it, isn't it? So I've seen a lot of dynamic translations that try to word this in a way that keeps the plural of the Hebrew word. Maybe the most simplistic way you could do it is just to say night after night. That's not what the word says there. It says nights. But if you were to try to bring it forward into English, you might say night after night. Though that isn't exactly what it says. It says by nights. But we wouldn't word it like that, would we? So this is a plural. This isn't one night. That's important. This is not just one single sleepless night. This is an ongoing series of nights where she didn't have rest. And I am stressing that for an important reason we'll talk about in a moment when we look at what this represents symbolically. I'll give you some examples of how many commentators might interpret this. If they're taking it literally, they would say she was longing for the bridegroom, and this is just talking about one night that she was having this longing come over. Another way that you might look at it, if someone is teaching it allegorically, which is the way that I do teach this, I don't believe, as I've said before, as long as Solomon is primarily intended to be taken literally, I think it's allegorical in its primary purpose. But another way you might look at this, for some commentators... Explain it this way that this is an example of a Christian who's in a bad place, in a low place, where they're dealing with depression or discouragement or some kind of condition of hardship, and they can't seem to find God's comfort in it. They're looking for the Lord or they're looking for Christ, and they feel like He's not meeting their need in that time. You know, we've all experienced that when we're going through a difficult time and it feels like the Lord's not there with us. You're wondering where He's at. That is one way I've heard people teach this, but I think the meaning of this passage is far deeper than a state of discouragement or depression that an individual Christian finds themselves in. And that's why I want to focus on the fact this is not just one night. This is an ongoing problem that this bride-to-be was struggling with. What is it she's not able to do? There's two things that you might say that she's not able to do to get peace. There's two elements to consider here, and they actually mean the same thing. That's why I want you to think about this much deeper than just the fact she's dealing with a state of discouragement and she can't seem to sense the Lord's presence around her. One, she's not able to sleep. She's in a restless state. And she's also not able to find her bridegroom. Both of those things dovetail together into the same exact symbolic issue. If you're in a condition, a state, a place where you don't have the kind of depth of relationship with Christ or access to him that you desire to have, not only are you going to be looking for him and longing for him, I'm being very, very technical with this, I'm going to make it real simple in a minute, but not only are you looking for him and longing for him because you can't find him where you're at, but you can't rest spiritually until you do find him. You'll never be able to spiritually rest until you truly can find Christ. But it's clear that she's not able to find Christ in this particular place where she's at. And that is the key. There is a place that the church was at for a great bulk of its history where the level of relationship that an individual could have with Christ was severely limited. Are you following now where I'm headed with this? There was a period of the church, and unfortunately the church is still in this period in a bulk of its operation, where Christ is not available in the fullest extent in every place. You won't find the depths of relationship with Christ taught in every place where Christ's name is used. She's in this restless state. She's in a state where she's unable to find rest. And she's also in a state where she's unable to find the very individual who will give her rest, Christ. And I do think through much of the history of the church, the ability to have the degree of intimacy, spiritually speaking with Christ, that it requires to attain to the bride class was unavailable. The description in this first half of this third chapter is a description of individuals who feel a terrible yearning and desire for a deeper relationship with Christ in a time and a place where that relationship is not available to them on that level. And there was a great period of the church age, so to speak, when the availability of that kind of depth of relationship was neither taught by the church, it wasn't really even allowed by the church. And the power to produce that kind of depth of relationship wasn't being exercised by the church. If I were to simplify this down to its simplest nuts and bolts, when the church fell away, the ability for individuals to have the type of relationship they could have had with Christ during the early church period was severely curtailed. There were several reasons for that. The moving of the Spirit of God dropped off dramatically after the first century. The order and operation of the church became tainted with a lot of political as well as philosophical conditions that began a downslide of the church that made it incapable of producing overcomers in the same way they could have been produced in the first century. When I use some of these terms, I'm sure most all of you understand the overlap between these terms, but when I talk about somebody being perfect, when I talk about them being called the high calling, when I talk about them being an overcomer, when I talk about them being the very elect, or when I talk about the bride or the bride class, I'm talking about all the same thing. A bride member is someone who's an overcomer, is someone who's reached the standard of perfection, the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ in Ephesians 4. That stature, I personally do not believe, was capable of being reached for a great period of the church when the church has been in the wilderness. And the expression that you're seeing in these first five verses is of somebody who feels a call to have a deeper relationship with Christ, but she cannot find Christ on that level. Someone who has a call and a longing, a yearning to be able to rest, but they're not able to rest. And resting is synonymous with ceasing from sin, and ceasing with sin is synonymous with attaining to perfection. So, do you see how these all play off one another? In the fifth chapter, there's a very similar series of statements to this first verse of the third chapter. I personally think several of these verses in the third chapter are an overview and several of the verses in the fifth chapter are a much more close-up look at some of the events going on in the third chapter, not the whole chapter. You can't put both chapters side by side. It's so basically chapter 3, 1 through 5, and chapter 5, 2 through 8. So I'm going to read a couple of the verses in chapter 5 to show you the parallels that might be here. In this chapter, the Shulamite, as I sleep, but my heart waketh, it is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks are the drops of the night. I've put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I've washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, my bowels removed from him. I rose up to open up to my beloved, and my hands drop with myrrh, my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Now, in the third chapter, you see the Shulamite in this restless state, looking for the bridegroom. You're going to see in some of these same verses, she is seeking him. It says it twice in the next couple of verses in the third chapter. She's seeking him, but she is not able to find him. In the exact same words that are in this fifth chapter. What I think stirs her in the third chapter that we don't see that's revealed in the fifth chapter is that he spoke to her heart. And she had a longing for a state of communion with him. We're talking about Christ. But when she sought for him to enter into that state of communion, she couldn't find him. We see in the fifth chapter, though, what instigates her longing. It's that she hears his voice calling to her. But when she goes the door, so to speak, and opens up, he's not to be found. And so she goes searching for him. The exact same series of events in the third chapter that we're talking about tonight, but with a lot more detail. You're going to see more detail of the bride and the bridegroom's interaction in the fifth chapter. You're also going to see some more detail about the watchman. We're going to come to the watchman's activities in just a couple verses and how the watchman respond to her looking for Jesus. In the third chapter, she asks the watchman where she can find him and there is no recorded response. In the fifth chapter, she's seeking him and the watchman find her and they wound her and they injure her, they beat her. What I think is happening in the fifth chapter, like I've been saying for the last few minutes, is it's an expanded view of what happened in the third. She didn't go through all the description of that in the third. She basically said, I looked for him. I asked the watchman. She doesn't tell you what they say. In the fifth chapter, she's looking for him. She asked the watchman, or they find her, and they're abusive to her, aren't they? So I want you to keep that in mind until we get back to that. But notice that even in this fifth chapter, she's not in a full state of rest. You might argue it says that I sleep. But if you're asleep and your heart's awake, you're not resting very soundly, are you? You know what your heart is. It's your mind. It's both the intellect and emotion that's part of your mind. If she is not able to rest, you ever had a night like that? Where you might have slept, but it seemed like you were constantly awake. You'd be waking up every few minutes. You know what usually does it? A lot of thoughts. A lot of things on your mind. A lot of pressures or a lot of worries. And that's really what's keeping her awake. It says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It's really the same thing that's going on in the third chapter where she's not able to sleep. If your heart is waking, if your mind is constantly active, you're not getting any rest. Even if your eyes are closed and your body's trying to shut down, if your mind won't shut down, you're still in a state of restlessness, aren't you? Mm -hmm. This is a little poetic, but I think this is the real driving point here. Anybody that has truly heard the voice of the bridegroom and heard his call, will never be able to rest until they've reached the fullness of that relationship with him. That is the driving impetus that is so important behind these doctrines when we're talking about the bride message or perfection. Unless you've got a conviction that drives you to want to have a deeper relation with Christ, you probably are not going to comprehend some of the deeper things related to the bride message because they go hand in hand. The bride message creates a deeper conviction, a deeper desire for communion with him, and a deeper desire for communion with him reveals that bride message to you. And you can see this picture in the third chapter and in the fifth chapter, that what's driving her is a terrible yearning for a deeper relationship with the bridegroom. She's never going to be able to get any rest until she's come to that full relationship. There's no religious exercise. There's no religious activity. There's nothing that can be done to give you rest when you have that kind of a longing in your heart for a deeper relationship with Him except to come to a place where you've attained to the fullness of that relationship. Now, I'm talking very poetically and philosophically so far tonight. Let me take it down a little bit, hopefully. What does it mean to be in the fullness of relationship with Christ? Listen, I'm using these words intentionally. Fullness, complete communion. What would it mean to be in a state of complete communion a state of spiritual harmony, at perfect peace with Christ, where would you have to be? Kevin? Overcomer. An overcomer. All of your life is hid in Christ. Meaning whatever you're doing, it's in perfect harmony with His will. The way that you're acting, the way that you're presenting yourself, the spirit that you're doing things in is an example, an expression of the mind of Christ. Meaning you are thinking like Christ, you are acting like Christ, Your motives are the motives that Christ would have? If you've got the motives of Christ, you'd have the same mind of Christ, wouldn't you? When you reach a place where you have truly got the mind of Christ, where your will is completely in harmony with his will, your spirit is completely in harmony with his spirit, your actions are completely in harmony with his actions, in every element of your life, both externally and internally, you would be an overcomer. You would be a perfected individual you would have attained to the bride class. Because Christ is not going to marry anyone of a lower standard than himself. Right. He is not going to marry an imperfect wife. He is a perfect individual and his wife will have to be perfect as well. And he's not going to marry a spouse that is in any way on a lower level than himself. Now let me get more specific. If Christ is absolutely perfect, his wife cannot be relatively perfect. If you need me to define those terms again, I'll be happy to. We've talked about it many times. If Christ is perfect in thought and deed, in internal and in external purity, so must his wife be. There is a place where you come to that harmony. Now, you're not even going to be seeking that without this kind of a motivation that you see this young lady have in the third and fifth chapter that she just cannot stand to be separated from him. She's got this tremendous pull drawing her to him. And that is the motivation that will cause you to live on a higher level. That is at the very roots of what we're talking about in some of these passages. There's four different Hebrew words in the Song of Solomon that are translated, at least in the King James Version, they're translated with the word bed. The first one of these is here in this first verse that we're going through, wherein it says that by night on my bed, the word bed here is mishkav, That is one of the most common Hebrew words for a bed. It means a bed or a couch, something that you recline on to rest. The only place it's used in the Song of Solomon is right here. The other word that's used for a bed, that's a very common word for a bed, that you think of a bed like you'd rest in, is mitah. That also means a bed or a couch. But it can also mean a litter, or what you call a palanquin, to be carried on. And if you visualize in the ancient world how kings would sometimes be carried or royal personages or wealthy individuals, sometimes they would have almost like a platform and it would be lifted on the shoulders of servants or slaves by staves of some kind and they would carry that individual on this bed. Now, it wasn't a bed you'd sleep on, but it carried the same connotation of a place where you could recline. Someone would carry you around on this palanquin or on this litter. That's what the word mitah generally means. Six verses from where we're at right now, which we won't get to tonight, when it talks about Solomon's bed, that these threescore men are around his bed with these swords on their thighs because of fear in the night. It's almost certainly not talking about the place he sleeps. It's talking about a litter that is borne by servants or slaves where he is up on that platform being carried. And by the way, that mitah is only used once. It's just used there in 3-7. Third word used in Song of Solomon is "eres," which is another word like "mishkav," which means a couch or a bed to rest on. The only place this word's used is back in uh, Song of Solomon one sixteen, where she was referring to our bed, talking about their marital bed, the bed of the bride and the bridegroom. Now this is important. What I really want to drive home with any time we bring up Hebrew or Greek words. By no means, unless this is your calling, do you need to feel like you need to memorize them or learn them inside and out. But what you better know is if they change the meaning of a passage. The reason that the study of Hebrew or Greek or the discussion of Hebrew or Greek in this kind of a context is valuable for everybody is because there's times that the Hebrew or Greek word may not mean what it looks like it means. And you do need to know that. You do need to understand what it means. The example of this is this bed of Solomon's in the King James Version in 3.7. Don't get in your mind that's a bed that somebody's sleeping in. That's not at all what that's describing. It's talking about a litter that's carried. Don't you think it's unusual when there are several common words to use for a bed to sleep in that Solomon would be inspired by the Spirit here? And I want you to think about why this might be. In 3.1, he uses the word mishkav for her bed. Now, she doesn't say there are bed. She says my bed. In 116, they're talking about our bed and a different Hebrew word is used there. That's where eres is used. Why do you think, given that they both basically mean the same thing, they both refer to a bed? Why do you think they'd use two different words? Why would the Spirit inspire two different words? Now, you're not going to know this unless you're a Hebrew student. I absolutely believe the Spirit inspires the selection of this type of precise language especially in the sense of a poetic and symbolic book like this. Even if someone were to argue that not every single tiny word in the Bible is fully inspired by the Spirit, he let men choose their own words. Some people believe that. You better believe, even if you want to believe that, that when you're talking about a symbolic book like this, I cannot imagine every tiny line wasn't inspired because it's very critical, the wording. So why would there be a different word for our bed in 116 than there is for my bed in one? Do you think there are two different beds? Sounds like one was a married bed the other individual bed. I think so. Why would the Spirit differentiate between the fact there's two beds here? Why would that be it important? Be a different idea. Oh, that's absolutely right, Rodney. Can you extrapolate that out? And let's use another X word. Can you exegete it? Can you get in there and break it down and explain it? Why do you think the Lord would be trying to convey a different idea if you've got somebody that's engaged and waiting for their marriage, or sleeping in their own bed versus their marriage bed they're going to be sleeping in later when they have their own home. I realize that distinction, but this is spiritual. So why would there be a distinction between our bed and my bed? This maybe will help you understand why I'm making this such a point. Do you notice she cannot sleep in her bed, can she? She's not able to get rest in that bed. Do you think she's going to be able to rest in the bed when she's finally in the bed of her own home after she's married? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The bride's caught up to third heaven. The marriage will take place with Christ. She'll rest then. Yes, she will. She'll already have had to rest before she gets to enter into that rest. <laughs> I'll let that one just rest there, and we'll move on. <laughs> Too many rest in one sentence. Leslie, what do you think? Well, in... Verse 1, could that be the whole body of believers? And then in the other verse, it's the called out people that are actually the blind. Yes, but I might tighten that down a little bit. That's why they didn't get rest, because they never got that intimate. They never reached that level with Yeshua that they were searching for, but the other ones did. That is definitely where I'm headed with it. I may tighten part of that down a little bit. A bed in the scripture represents what we might call, I've heard people use this phrase, the gospel bed. That the saints will rest in their beds. The bed does represent the church on some level. You can get much more allegorical than just the church, but let's use that to begin with. The bed does represent the place where God's activity is going on that allows you to rest or allows a procreative activity to go on in your mind meaning the seed of the Word of God is sown in your mind, the seed of the Spirit of God comes to life within you. So the church is one symbolic extension of the bed. Now, if she was trying to rest in this particular bed and she had to get up out of that bed to go looking for him, was she in the right bed? No, no, No. she hadn't found him. She wasn't in the right bed. That's why I said I want to tighten this down a little bit. What you said, Sister Leslie, is very important, but I want to tighten it down. Because if we make this out to be the church in a good sense, well, if that truly is the true church, you should be able to rest there. Now, you're not going to have the same degree, possibly, of communion you're going to have when you are fully with the bridegroom, but you should be able to rest in the true church. It's the false church where you can't rest in that bed. Mm -hmm. Now, do you see why I'm tightening it down the way I am? Mm -hmm. And I think the Spirit intentionally differentiated between the Hebrew words to show you there is a bed that belongs to the bride and the bridegroom where there is a full rest and where life is produced. And there is a bed that this young lady was in, in a spiritual sense, in the beginning of this third chapter that would not allow her to rest. Neither could she find her bridegroom there. That's the point I want to drive home, and it is very deep what we've been talking about so far. If a church is incapable of producing life, it's incapable of implanting the seed of the Word of God in your mind, of having the life of the Spirit moving through it, If it's incapable of bringing you into a higher relationship with Christ, then you're in the wrong place. If it can't do all three of those things, two of those are what we might call procreative, the Word and the Spirit. One of them is somebody's got to be teaching a message that there is a higher calling. There is a higher way. There is a measure of holiness that is required by this new covenant that we've entered into. And unless that's being taught, you are not in a place that can allow you ever to fully rest spiritually. You can never find yourself fully in Christ till the complete message is delivered to you and you're a part of it. That's exactly right. Just to make sure we cover all these, the other one of these examples, the word bed is Aruga, is the Hebrew word. It's used twice in the Song of Solomon in 5.13 and 6.2. It's not a bed that you sleep in. It's a bed like you think of a terrace in a garden or some built-up place where you put soil where you can put a bed of flowers. Which is interesting because that's really the same thing if you want to get down to brass tacks. It's a place where there's soil where life can be produced. So all of them carry the same kind of symbolic connotation, but they are different in their context. There is, I think, two instigating factors that keep this bride-to-be from being able to rest First of all, you can never find rest in a nominal relationship with Christ. Do you know what the word nominal means? I use it a lot and it's nowhere near as hard as saying some of the other terms we've used like Babylon. What is the nominal church? What does the word nominal mean? It's in name only. In name only is a simple way to put it. That means it has the name but it doesn't have the reality. There's a lot of churches that have got the pieces but they don't have the power. And you can have an engine, and it might be as pretty as could be, but unless you've got the fuel and the igniting elements to get it to run, it doesn't have any real value, does it? But there's two things I think are keeping this young lady from being able to rest in this particular condition that she's in. One of them is you cannot rest in a nominal relationship. As long as you're under an apostate order with philosophically or paganized, polluted doctrine, you are never going to rest. You're never going to rest. That's right. You know how people that can't sleep get their rest? They take a pill, they take some chemical enhancement to cause them to go to sleep. And maybe they'll put you to sleep, but I'll tell you what kind of sleep you'll be getting. There will be no rest if you take a spiritual sleeping pill. If you got to take a spiritual sleeping pill to get your rest, you won't get real true rest. You'll wake up just as tired as you started. And there are some places of false religion that will put you to sleep real quick. They'd love to put you to sleep, but you won't be resting. Nobody should rest if they're not totally in Christ. You can't rest. Can rest. You can't truly and fully rest unless you're in Christ. You might think that everything's all right. There's the problem, Brother Lee. When you feel like you're getting enough sleep, but your body isn't. I'm talking about spiritually, though, you realize. When you think, well, I'm doing okay you don't know how badly your body is deteriorating because you can take drugs and they will mask the effect of the condition you're in. Do you realize that you can be drugged by false doctrine and it will mask the effect of the condition you're in? You can be so used to a teaching or a tradition that you've got that you don't even realize you've been drugged a long time ago and you're walking around in a stupor, spiritually speaking. Amen. And somebody has got to wake you up. Now there is the two extremes of this. You can be spiritually asleep in a bad way or a good way. The only way to have true, full rest in Christ is to be so fully awakened spiritually. Isn't that strange? You've got to be so awakened spiritually that you realize what it's going to take for you to enter into your rest. Now I realize again, I'm being very poetic. Entering into your rest means going on to perfection. (laughs) Entering into your rest means going on to perfection. Until you're fully awakened to the responsibility that you have to have to go on to perfection, to enter into your rest, you are never going to be able to rest. You're always going to wonder what's missing here. There's always going to be some degree of frustration. Is that clear enough? I'm going on multiple levels. You'll just have to forgive me. I'm dealing with several things, and there's questions that I've been getting that are extremely deep, and the only way to answer them is with deep statements. So you may wonder why I'm using some of the terminology I'm using, but there's a purpose. I repented and got baptized. I was well aware that there must be more to it than what I had. I knew there was more to it. And you know what that is, Brother Lee? That is the first whisperings of the voice of the bridegroom calling you to something higher. Something better. Christ sends out a call of common salvation. The whomsoever will call, if you want to call it that. I died for you. Will you come and be redeemed? but he also sends out individual and unique calls to people that he wants to come to a higher level in him. Not every individual who comes to Christ will be a part of his bride. That is a unique and special calling that is very different from the calling of common salvation. And it requires more power than common grace to accomplish. It's a higher calling than the calling to common salvation, and it requires more power than common grace to accomplish. You'll need overcoming grace if you want to become an overcomer. And an overcomer is a bride member. Somebody that has fully entered into the rest. Since I'm going to be using that term a lot, let me simplify it for you as much as I can. I'm going to keep drilling this in. When you have fully entered into your rest, there's nothing working within you to sin. You cease from your works. What works? Was the idea that they should cease from doing good works? Of course not. Was the idea they should cease from works of righteousness? Of course not. What works are you going to cease from to enter into your rest? You're going to cease from the works of the flesh. You know, the works of the flesh are more than external works. See, relative perfection is related to the externals. It means I'm not doing anything externally. Absolute perfection is related to the internals as well. That means my mind is no longer working in a sinful way. That's a difference, isn't it? You and I cannot do that by ourselves that requires overcoming grace. It requires an infusion of power that is very special. And that's not available under common grace and common salvation. It requires an uncommon calling for you to have the power to do that. So part of it is that if you're in the wrong place, let me make this as simple as I can. If you're in the wrong place with the wrong message, you are never going to be able to enter into your rest because no one will tell you what it takes to get there. And they won't even tell you it's possible to get there. The other side of that is, You're never going to find your rest. You'll never be able to fully rest in a relative state of righteousness. Because the draw to the high calling, the upward call, the upward pull is for a greater standard of righteousness than is capable at a common level, so to speak. It's what I call fractional faith. You can't just have faith in a fraction. I've got 80% faith. It has to be 100-fold. Scripture says we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him, and until we reach that state, there's always a power drawing us higher.
1: That's right. The Holy Spirit.
0: That's right. That's absolutely right. And I believe that when God puts the bride message in the heart of an individual, they will never find peace until they've attained perfection. It's, right. that state. it's just that simple. You will never be at peace until you've achieved perfection. The gospel message during the wilderness period of the church was tainted by false doctrine and tradition. What you might call the bed that made up the operation of the church, unclean bed that no true child of God could ever rest in. That's why she had to get up and go looking for him. Because she was laying in that bed and could not find peace. She could not find rest. And she certainly could not find him there. So she had to get up and go looking for him. God used some very similar terminology to describe Israel's attempts to rest. In Isaiah twenty-eight twenty. he's describing them trying to rest in the wrong covenantal relationship and the relationships they had with the nations around them rather than resting in him. And it's interesting the words he uses here. Now, he's not talking about somebody sleeping in their bed at home either. This shows you the way the word bed is used symbolically. The bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it. And the covering is narrower than he can wrap himself in it. Attempting to rest in a bed that's too small, beneath an undersized covering, is an exercise in futility and frustration.
1: <laughs>
0: I had a dear friend growing up. We used to travel to meetings together. He'll know exactly who he is when he hears this. Six foot seven inches tall. And I don't know how many times we went to meetings and that poor soul had to sleep on beds where his calf and foot was all the way off the end. That's an exercise in frustration. Your legs are sticking off the end of the bed. Have you ever had somebody give you one of these little thin throws and you're supposed to wrap yourself in that and it's cold? That's both frustration and futility. you got a bed that you can't even stretch out on and you got a throw that won't cover your body. That's a miserable night of sleep, wouldn't you say? And God was saying to Israel, look, the bed you're trying to rest in is too small. And the covering you're trying to cover yourself with while you're in that bed is too small. That's exactly the condition that the bride to be was in in this circumstance. There was a bed available to her, but it was too small to produce bride members. There was a covering available, but there wasn't enough covenantal covering to bring bride members to perfection. The bed was too small and the covering was too narrow. And the reason for that is very simple. We talk about it all the time. We're going to get back at some point to a church history class because we've had a lot of people asking to do that. When we wrap up some of our other loose ends, we're going to go into the first few centuries. But following the early church period, the gospel bed became polluted with political pollution. The gospel bed became polluted with tainted doctrinal concepts, paganized traditions. Philosophy of all kinds polluted the gospel bed. And when you bring all those pollutants in, There is no way to rest. In that initial period after the falling away of the church, all the way up till the present, if you're in a place where there is no opportunity for rest, you're going to find the same difficulty that they had. I want to stress again this statement that she makes, that she sought him but found him not. That's very important to understand. If this is a symbolic picture of the wilderness period of the church, Christ was not available at the level necessary for this bride to ever enter into a a consummated relationship. And there were some brilliant men. The ones who were brilliant were so tainted by the culture and philosophy of their day that their brilliance was overwhelmed by their education. And you can be educated into stupidity. The other issue was, there was such a tremendous degree of corruption, both politically and perversion morally, going on in the leadership of that church for centuries. You have an immoral and perverse and politically corrupt church, full of individuals that are incapable of teaching the incorruptible Word of God, and without the power to back up that teaching, the Shulamite had to get up out of her bed to go looking for Jesus. She wasn't going to find him there. You've got to find a place in this day where you can find Jesus. Looking for a place where that measure of holiness is being taught. Looking for a place where the vision of the bride is being presented. The Reformation did not end the Babylonian captivity of the church. Babylon was the term they used for the Catholic Church, in particular in the West. And you see these phrases used by many of the reformers. The Babylonian captivity of the church meaning the time that we were under that hierarchical, monolithic church. Do you realize that the church as a whole is still in a Babylonian captivity right now? The reformers did not deliver the church from a Babylonian captivity. That captivity did not end with the reformation. We talked here just a few weeks ago about leprosy in a spiritual sense and how leprosy can be in an individual. Leviticus 13 and 14 are where you would go to see this. Leprosy can be in an individual that needs to be cleansed. Leprosy can be in a garment that needs to be cleansed. Leprosy can be in a house that needs to be cleansed. If you were an individual and you were cleansed of leprosy, but your house was tainted with leprosy, and you went back to live in the same house, would you be unclean again? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, the reformers left the house. That was a leprous house, and they left it. The problem is they took leprous garments with them when they left. The reformers left a leprous house, but they took leprous garments with them. Some of the doctrines they carried out of the Catholic Church were diseased doctrines, tainted doctrine. And they left the house and to some extent got cleansed themselves, but you cannot be clean as long as you keep those garments. And you know who's a picture of that? Can you tell me? Who brought uncleanness into the whole camp of Israel by bringing in Babylonish garments? 7th chapter of the book of Joshua, Achan of all things of the tribe of Judah. And Joshua was wondering why Israel was having such a struggle and things were not working out for them. They had been so mighty when they came over Jordan. And now suddenly there's problems. Things aren't as they should be. What is going on? And Joshua fell down before the Lord and in a progressive way, very unusual, he didn't just point it out and say, this is the person. Progressively, they went down the layers till they went through the tribe of Judah and all the way down to the house of Achan. And found out that Achan had silver shekels, a wedge of gold, and a Babylonish garment yeah. that he had held on to, and God didn't want them having any of those things. He didn't want him to take anything Babylonish into that camp. When the Reformers left the Catholic Church, saints, they brought Babylonish garments out with them. They just could not let go of some of those doctrines that they were so sure were right that were nothing but doctrines of devils that they carried out of that church. Well, I'm still And until that doctrine is dealt with, even though they've left the house that's full of leprosy, they're walking around in leprous garments and they're just as tainted with leprosy as if they were still living in the house. I use this phrase lately that Chuck Colson had used where he said that Western Christianity, I think is what he was talking about, the United States is so many miles wide and so many inches deep. That is the problem. Nominal Christendom is very broad. There's churches all over the place. But how deep is it? Do you know the goal of the Christian experience is depth? That is the motivating goal. Deeper, deeper. Like the song we used to sing, Deeper, Lord, I Pray. And I love that it uses both of these because though it seems like a conundrum, it is true. Deeper and higher every day. (laughs) Well, That seems like a conundrum. How do you go deeper and higher? Well, the deeper you get, the higher you'll be. The deeper you get in the things of God, the deeper you get buried with him in baptism, the deeper you are buried and dead in Christ, the higher you'll be rising in the economy of God until you attain to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, which is the bride calling. But you do that by getting deeper. And if nominal Christendom is just a few inches deep, you can't get deep enough. You've got to find a place where there's a vein for the silver and a place where the gold is being mined out. There's a vein that goes deep into the earth. And so the more you dig, you don't just come to the end of it after a few inches, but there's no more to it. There's a vein that goes down deeper than you've ever been. And I do personally believe that any individual who's ever felt that tugging call, the bride message, must leave the Broadway. Must leave nominal Christendom. Who wants to read the second verse? I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Notice that in the bed she was in, she couldn't find him. She got up out of that bed and went out into the streets. She went out into the city. Now, a city represents a place of government, of economy, of trade. If you're talking about it literally. But a city, spiritually speaking is what we're discussing here. This isn't a a literal city. This is a spiritual city. And the city is the overall church, so to speak, of that day. It represents a place of government. It represents a place of cultural activity. It represents a place of economic activity. But spiritualize all that now. There's a culture to a church, isn't there? There's an economic activity to a church. And I don't just mean taking the offering. I'm talking about buying and selling the truth. There's a degree to which you buy the truth if it's available to you. And there is a level of spiritual government there. I'm a little bit stupefied by some of the commentators who make all these passages out to be, this is a person in the church, and this is the true church, this city, this is the true ministry, these watchmen. That's how a lot of commentators that take this allegorically teach it, you know. The bed she's in is a good bed. The city she's in is a good city. The streets and broadways are good broadways. That's the church. They would say that's the church. And I agree, it is a church. a church. Yeah. The watchman, that's the ministry. I agree, it is a ministry. It's the false ministry. I'm a little stupefied by the fact that they're not putting several things together. And I'll come back to them a little more in a moment. But one of them is the fact that she could find no rest. That's not a good thing. Then she goes out into the city looking for Christ in the city. If that's the good church, that's pretty bad if you can't find Jesus there. She goes out into the city looking for Jesus in the streets and in the broadways and cannot find him. And then she asks, as you're going to see in a minute, the watchmen, and they don't even respond to her. And then if the fifth chapter is a parallel, they end up beating her for asking, beating her for being out looking for him. Anybody that really was trying to have a true, genuine, unfettered relationship with Christ during that dark age, wilderness period of the church, they would kill you for it. Yeah. If you tried to do it outside their covering, if you tried to do it outside their authority, if you tried to have access to Christ without going through them, you would lose your life. You ask the Albigenses, you ask the Waldensians, ask the Vaudois. There were all kinds of individuals even before the Reformation who all they wanted was a deeper relationship with Christ and they were murdered for it, thrown off cliffs and other horrible things that were done not only during the Inquisition, not only during the Crusades. Prior to the Crusades, some of these things were going on. They would not allow you to have that kind of relationship. And notice the parallels here. She's going through the streets in the third chapter looking for her bridegroom, looking for Christ, can't find him. In the fifth chapter, she's going searching through the streets, and they find her searching, and they beat her for it. This is the period when the apostate church was in complete control of Christendom. The term city in the Bible very clearly can represent a place of spiritual government, a place of spiritual activity, good or bad, a place of spiritual culture, good or bad, What's the best positive example of a city named in the Bible that's used for its place of God's spiritual government, God's spiritual activity? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Sometimes when the word Jerusalem is used, in fact, quite often, if not most often, it's talking about a literal, physical city. Sometimes when the word Jerusalem is used, it's talking about the people of Israel or the government of the people of Israel. Sometimes when the word Jerusalem is used, it's talking about the church. And sometimes when the word Jerusalem is used, it's talking about the bride. You've got to figure out by context which one is which. There are some passages in the Old Testament, without doubt, it's just talking about the literal city. It's not intended to be taken symbolic. I'll give you an example. Jerusalem is a cup of trembling. That's not talking about the church. That's talking about Israel out there and the fact that they are a cup of trembling right now in the hands of the nations. Now, that's not the church. There are other places where Jerusalem is used to refer to the New Covenant government and spiritual activity of God. That's the church right now. You see how it can overlap? And then there is the new Jerusalem. Now, the reason there's a difference between Jerusalem in a new covenant sense being slightly different from the new Jerusalem is the fact that there is going to be a different level of authority, power, and purity in the new Jerusalem than is in the present spiritual Jerusalem. Right now, the church is an example of Jerusalem, but the church is not a perfect operation. But the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, is going to be a perfect operation. So the new Jerusalem in the 21st chapter of Revelation is very clear on this. represents the bride. And the bride represents the government of God. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. And when the angel begins to describe it to John, he said, Let me show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So the new Jerusalem is a picture of the final, perfected government of God at the center of which at the core of which is the bride of Jesus Christ and which is the key component of that there's negative examples as well who can think of the most used negative example of the name of a city that's used in the same kind of ways Jerusalem is used in the bible yeah. babylon babylon was a literal physical city without doubt and there's many times in the old testament it's just talking about the literal city of babylon Then there's times in the Old Testament it's talking about a general judgment on a place of false religion. And then there's times that Babylon is very definitively talking about the apostate church. See how cities can be used this way? So which city do you think this is that she gets out of her bed and goes out into the city, in the streets and in the broad ways, which city is this? Is this the city of God? Or is this Babylon? Babylon. I think it's Babylon. Revelation 17 and 18, by the way, would probably be the simplest place you could go to really see Babylon in its context as a city. Not just as a spiritual place, but look at all the trade and economy as described there as well. I will arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways I will seek him. The word street there is the Hebrew word shuk, which refers to what we think of as a street in the common sense, like lanes running between buildings in a city. The other word that's translated broad way is the word broad, is actually a little bit different word. In the King James, it's most often translated street or streets, but that's really a little misleading. The word broadway is there is the Hebrew word rechov. And what it really is referring to is a broad open place, like a plaza, or even a place where streets come together, where there's a bigger opening. There are streets... And then there are these open plazas, these broadways. Even when you come in the gate of a city, it's more open. You don't come into a narrow channel usually. It's open and then the streets come off of it. Those broadways are those open areas. Does the fact that she is looking in the broadways make you think of a scripture somewhere where someone talks about the broadways in a negative way? Yeah. Yeah. What's scripture? God is a way that leads to destruction. Mm-hmm. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Isn't that interesting? When we talk about the broadness of Christendom, but its shallow depth, that Christ's own words about the way was that it is a narrow way and few find it. He didn't say a whole lot of people are going to find it, he said few find it. And notice that this bride candidate. After she rises out of her bed to go seeking the bridegroom, she's looking for him in the streets and in the broad ways of that city. That's a perfect example of the nominal Christian world with its broad but shallow ways. The simplest understanding of this is that this is the church that were called of God, not just the false church. These are people, and there were people. This is my answer to those kind of statements that I get once in a while. Weren't there righteous people? Oh, yes. There were without doubt righteous people through all the history of the church. But were there bride members? There's a vast difference between righteous people and bride members. In fact, I imagine there were a lot of people that died for their righteous stand that they took. This whole overview of what we've been reading these first two verses is a picture of the righteous element in the midst of the fallen church trying to find a way to have a deep relationship with Christ but incapable of doing so. She cannot rest And when she goes looking for Christ, she cannot find him. They're incapable of having that depth of relationship with Christ in that kind of an environment. All right, how about the third verse? The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. We've been talking about this all along. The watchmen that go about the city. This is all that you see about the watchmen is in this verse. They do not respond to her. If it's the same parallel with the fifth chapter, their response to her is to beat her, to wound her. But in this passage, they don't respond to her. And notice it's the broad ways that she was seeking him in when she ran into these watchmen. So if this is the broad ways of false religion, do we think these are righteous watchmen or unrighteous watchmen? It's amazing to me how simple that is, and yet so many commentators say, this is the church, this is the ministry, You know what, part of the reason I think for that is there's a disconnect in people's minds that there could have truly been a church that fell away. And if there wasn't a righteous government throughout history on some level, then we've got to question all of our traditions. We've got to question all of our history. That's absolutely right. Many people aren't willing to do that because tradition and history is a safe thing to rest on. That's how we've always believed. That's how it's always been taught. That's a safe place to be, but it's not a place you can rest. This word for watchman is a Hebrew word shamar, which actually means to hedge about. And that is the job of the watchman. The Hebrew word shamar is used many times in the scripture to describe both righteous and unrighteous watchmen. I'll give you an example of the unrighteous because I think these are unrighteous watchmen. But there's many examples of the righteous. When God spoke to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3, And he said, I've made you a watchman. He said in Isaiah, I've set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall not hold their peace day or night. Those are righteous watchmen. Those are godly men standing for God. Those are righteous watchmen watching over the people of God. These are not righteous watchmen. I've been contrasting this with the fifth chapter of the Song of Solomon. The seventh verse is where it says, the watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Now, by the way, the word watchman there and the word keepers is the same word. They just translate it two different ways. That's both the Hebrew word shamar, just like here, it's the Hebrew word shamar, watchmen, guards, sentries, people that guard the walls, people that are watching out for enemies. Isn't it strange that their concern in the fifth chapter seems to be somebody that's inside the walls that they don't like traveling around looking for her bridegroom. If you're the city guard and your job is supposed to be to keep the enemies out, why are you beating the citizens inside the walls because they're looking for the bridegroom? You see the problem? What is the goal of a false watchman versus a true watchman? That'd probably help if you could unravel that. Here's one way you can differentiate very simply and clearly between a righteous and an unrighteous watchman. The righteous watchman is concerned with the care of the people under his protection. The unrighteous watchman is concerned with the control of the people under his authority. There's a vast difference between care and control. You might have to exercise some control if you care. It's the motive behind those. If your desire is to control, if your desire is that you care, motive is generally the issue. And there's a vast difference between watchmen that care and they're trying to protect the people and they're trying to make sure things are as they should be versus watchmen who are interested in controlling the people. Isaiah 56 is one of the best examples of the idea of a watchman being used in a negative sense as his watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they're greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they're shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. They're greedy and dumb dogs. They do not know how to warn the people because they're far too concerned about their own personal needs. They're far too concerned about maintaining their control than protecting the people. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to reiterate, nowhere in this passage in the third chapter do the watchmen even respond to her plea. She's pleading with them to tell me where my beloved's at, and they're silent. That should be another clue these are unrighteous watchmen. couldn't talk. There are some very clear distinctions between these watchmen. This is what tells me that these are unrighteous. They do not answer her when she's pleading, where is my bridegroom? And I have actually heard this in numerous commentaries that this is the ministry of the church bringing righteous disciplines on this person who's trying to be closer to Jesus. You're completely misunderstanding. This is somebody who is not doing something wrong. All they want is to get closer to Jesus and they get beat for it. This individual is seeking more of Jesus and the first thing we see in the third chapter is no response. They can't tell her where he's at because they don't know. Well, they can name his name, but they have never had a real experience with him. They don't know where he's at. And then in the fifth chapter, you see when they find her, they wound her and smite her and beat her. So their response to her looking for him is to attack her. That was the false ministry of that church. That fallen church abused their saints and they murdered and abused anyone who tried to have a deeper relationship with the Lord outside their covering. And notice the other phrase that said in the fifth chapter. They smote her, they wounded her, they took away her veil. There's a reason why a righteous ministry might take away somebody's veil, even if that veil was their covenantal covering. Can you think of an example? You should be able to come up with two very quickly. Of an example when a righteous ministry actually judged a person in the church and took them out from under the covering of the covenantal protection. Paul did it both times. One time he was talking to the church at Corinth. One time he was talking to Timothy when he mentioned this. 1 Corinthians 5, the individual who was in an improper immoral relationship in the church, he delivered him to Satan. Now, when you deliver somebody to Satan, we can get in deep discussion on that. But very simply put, you just took them out from underneath the covering of protection of God. The whole point is that God allowed that man in that position to have the authority when somebody was in that kind of a state, that they could actually cut them off from the covering of God. They could remove their veil. And he did it again to Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's in 1 Timothy, when he tells Timothy that they might learn not to blaspheme, I delivered them over to Satan. When Paul ejected them, they were out from under God's protection. To be delivered to Satan means you are no longer under God's protection. He took away their veil. Now that's not what's being talked about here. Hymenaeus and Alexander were teaching false doctrine. This man was living a filthy immoral life and would not change. This young lady is just looking for Jesus and they're taking away her veil. You see the problem? They have to be unrighteous watchmen. Can we compare the unrighteous watchmen with the false shepherds that are spoken of? Oh yes, that's what they are. A false shepherd is an unrighteous watchman. A well, shepherd's to watch over the flock, shepherds to protect the sheep. All right, let's move on to the next verse. How about the fourth verse? It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her that conceived me. Notice the stages she went through. She was in the bed, and she could not rest. She could not sleep in this bed. So she got up out of the bed, but she didn't leave the church that she was a part of. She just got out of that bed, went around looking still under that same false order. And under that false order where she's looking for Christ, she's going in the broadways and the streets trying to find him and cannot find him and ends up, again, if chapter five is a parallel, not only not getting an answer from the watchman, but getting assaulted by the watchman. And then notice what happens next. It was but a little while, and I passed from them. She had to leave that false ministry, saints. She would never find Christ under a false ministry. She had to pass from them. The challenge here is what this means, that it was but a little while. Was that a little while of hundreds of years? Yeah. Might very well have been. Well, there are some little times. I've given you the examples before in Jeremiah and Isaiah. this shows you man's perspective versus God's. Where in Jeremiah, God says, I have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. And in Isaiah, he says, for a little while I have forsaken thee and for a small moment. It's the same exact period he's talking about in Jeremiah when he says, I've kindled a fire which shall burn forever, that he says in Isaiah, it's just a small moment. Well, that's God's perspective, the small moment. Fire burning forever is how it feels to us. The key is that you have to leave the fallen church and the false ministry to find true relationship with Christ. And that's another example. Here's maybe the last of my series of examples why I believe these are false watchmen. Because before she ever could find Christ, she had to pass from them. I'm going to give you the list one last time. She asked them where her bridegroom was. No recorded response. They didn't even seem to know. Fifth chapter... She's wandering the city looking for him and they find her and beat her and wound her and take her veil away. And then finally, she finds him, but not until she passes from them. Not until she leaves that false church and that false ministry. I have a question. Uh They don't beat her till chapter 5, though. Uh But this isn't chronological, though, Leslie. You can't go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Chapter 5 has some repetition. In fact, these chapters are really not in a very formatted order. They jump around chronologically quite a bit. I'll give you an example. There's some things that happen in the second chapter we just read here lately, where he comes like a roe and a young heart upon the mountains, and he brings her back with him. That isn't until long after the events of the third chapter. So these are not in chronological order. That's one of the difficulties of this. Hebrew word avar does mean, in its most root sense, it means to cross over a river. There is a river, so to speak, that constitutes the border between Babylon and the body of Christ. And you've got to cross that river. You can't float around in your little dinghy in the middle of it, and you can't stay on one side of it. You need to cross the river. Now, you may not always be able to cross the river in a comfortable situation. If God is corporately bringing his church... Across the river you can get across there on pretty good shape in fact you can go across dry shod because that's what happened when they crossed the red sea that's what happened when they crossed the jordan when there was a corporate move the river opened in a very different way but you notice when these gadites wanted to join david and david was on the other side of the jordan he was in judah and the gadites wanted to join him and they had to cross the jordan to get there it didn't work like that for them they had to cross during the flood stage of jordan but even though the Israelites crossed while Jordan was in its flood stage, the waters of the Jordan rolled back and they went across dryshad The Gadites swam across in the flood stage of Jordan because they wanted to be there so badly with David. Not everybody is going to have the advantage of being in a restored church period where you're just swept across the Jordan, so to speak. There's some people who are going to realize where they're at and know where Jesus is at and they're going to fight tooth and nail to leave where they're at to get to where he's at. That's part of coming out of Babylon where he says in the 18th chapter of Revelation, come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sins. If you're still on the other side of the river, I'm using that very metaphorically. I'm not talking about the Jordan in its deepest prophetic sense, just metaphorically. If you're still on the other side of the river, maybe the river hasn't opened, but if you know that you're supposed to be over there with David and his camp, you better swim across in whatever conditions the river are in. Don't wait around for the river to open because it may be too late. The Shulamite, when she finally finds him, she holds him and she won't let him go. That's part of this motive that underlies the whole idea of this book is this driving compulsion for communion with Christ. It's a driving compulsion. And when she finally finds him, she wants to hold on with all the strength that she has. And if you want the most simple distinction motivationally within the heart between somebody who's got the bride calling and somebody that doesn't, that is it. The motivation is I want more of Jesus. And if I can find him, I'm never going to let go of him. If I can get into that level of relationship, I'm never going to surrender it. God used this kind of concept several times talking about his relationship with Israel. Deuteronomy 4.29, when he says, If from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. He says the same kind of phrase in Jeremiah 29.13. You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Not just a casual search. Jesus uses that language in Luke 11, 9 to 10 when he's talking about asking and you'll receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you. You've got to seek, you've got to be asking, you've got to be striving for that. That's why we use the phrase striving for the bride because it isn't a passive relationship. You've got to be working toward it. And then finally the last thing here, is this mother's house. We talked about that already. When we talked about this in Song of Solomon 2.9, the mother in this most spiritual sense is the new covenant. She has two different houses. She's got a physical visible house, the church, and she's got the invisible spiritual house, which is third heaven. One day, the bride is going to be taken back to Jesus' mother's tent, like in Isaac's case. This, though, is her describing him coming to her mother's house. Now, they both have the same mother, so that seems a little strange. But when it talks about her mother's house, it's talking about the physical church on the earth. When it's talking about his mother's house, it's the same mother. But remember, she has two houses. Remember Hebrews, it talks about the reality and the shadow. The tabernacle was really the house of God. The temple was really the house of God. But there was a celestial house that reflected that. So there were two different levels back to his mother's tent that means he's taking her back to third heaven when she's saying I want to take you back to my mother's house that means she is wanting him to come to the church in his power and in his presence because when he comes to her mother's house he's coming to get her to bring her home and her mother's house in the physical sense now is the church then finally the fifth verse there's nothing to discuss there we've talked about that before when we talked about 2-7 so I'm not going to go through any detail on that